Today on the Sunshine Economy, hear from real estate developer Don Peebles and why he's optimistic about the market in South Florida. We're looking at buying hotels now. Peebles first came to South Florida 25 years ago thanks to a hotel and economic boycott of the tourism industry by blacks. And he's focused on race and real estate today. Talent is distributed equally. It's opportunity that's discriminatorily applied. I'm Tom Hudson. Also on today's Sunshine Economy, the banker, baker, and bartender coping with the pandemic economy. I've gotten a few people that have called and asked for for interviews. The last few weeks, it's been uh, kind of a process and a nightmare. We are classifying a handful of loans uh, because we do see them becoming you know, problems. It's all ahead after the news. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Like a lot of people, Don Peebles first came to Miami on a vacation. He was a successful real estate developer in Washington, D.C., who was looking for some sun with his wife and young son. It was the mid-1990s, and they bought a vacation condo in Miami Beach. We were down there New Year's Eve uh, weekend, 1995, and I was reading the Miami Herald. And there was a story in the Miami Herald neighbor section about... This hotel, the Shorecrest, is on the market for $5 million, and the owner had bought it a few years ago for 800000 but it was next door to the Royal Palm. And that's the place that Peoples was curious about. The South Florida he was visiting at that time was undergoing an economic racial reckoning that had begun five years earlier. In 1990, Nelson Mandela had been released from a South African prison after 27 years. He was due to visit Miami, and the city planned to celebrate with a proclamation and giving Mandela a key to the city. But before Mandela came here, he said this. That was on ABC's Nightline program. Colonel Gaddafi. It was June 21st, 1990. Fidel Castro. Support our struggle to the hilt. With that, the Cuban-American political leaders in Miami canceled the plans and five Cuban-American mayors signed a letter criticizing Mandela's comments regarding Fidel Castro. Black leaders pushed for the proclamation and key to the city to no avail. First, a national organization of black lawyers canceled their planned convention in Miami, and within weeks, other groups said they would not hold events at South Florida hotels. It became known as the Quiet Riot, an economic boycott of the region's hospitality industry. It lasted almost three years. Apologies were given, proclamations were finally issued, and steps toward more racial inclusion of blacks in the hospitality industry were taken, including a black-owned, convention-worthy hotel in Miami Beach. Three years after the end of that economic boycott is where Don Peebles comes in with the Shorecrest and Royal Palm Hotels, which at the time were owned by the city of Miami Beach. What was interesting about the opportunity was they were looking for an African-American developer And I had never seen a project where they were specifying the specific race. It's normally minority or woman, and they encourage it. But in this case, it was set aside for an African-American developer. Peebles eventually won the deal to become the first black owner of a Miami Beach resort hotel. His real estate career in South Florida began because of race. It's one of the topics we talked about when we spoke with Peebles in late September. He runs the company that bears his name from South Florida, and he's weathered several real estate recessions. 
Peebles has projects in a lot of cities, including here, New York, Washington, Los Angeles, giving him a national picture of commercial real estate, particularly office buildings and hotels. You'll hear his outlook for the market a little bit later on in this program. In the summer of 2019, almost a year before the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer sparked national demonstrations about racial and social justice, Peoples launched a half-billion-dollar fund to invest with minority and women real estate developers. He wants to use private money similar to how he got involved in South Florida real estate. Remember, that first project of his, the Royal Palm Hotel in Miami Beach, was the result of a racial economic boycott and an agreement to have a black-owned hotel on the beach, something I asked him to reflect on now, 25 years later. Well, I thought, wow, I mean, what could they have possibly done to make things so bad that they needed to do this? And so I realized... By they, you meant just the establishment? I mean, the city and the environment. I mean, you know, look, real estate... Entrepreneurship is a you know business that you know people who are talented um, can you know with vision and good ideas and willing to work hard can you know build some success and, and some wealth. But the number one ingredient to that is um, capital, access to capital. So I mean, you can have a wonderful car, but you can't travel cross country if you can't get gas at the gas stations. If all the gas stations say no, you can't come here. Um, then uh, you will run out of gas and not get to your destination. And that was kind of the situation with Miami is that the banking institution in Miami was so incestuous that um, there was no opportunity for African-Americans to build wealth. And then the hospitality industry and the real estate industry were pretty discriminatory. So very few people could get of color could get experience within the industry. So I thought about that and I thought about what it meant. And as a result, I decided that after researching the cause of the boycott, what happened, I made a decision that we would have a 100% African-American owned hotel project, as opposed to the requirement, which was 51% African-American owned. And out of the seven bidders, we were the only um, bidder that was 100% African-American owned. But that project changed my perspective about business because prior to that, I had never participated in any kind of minority program or um, um, sheltered market competition. I competed in Washington, D.C. in an open market, but I was in an environment that was much more hospitable to African-American entrepreneurs. That experience with Royal Palm in the mid-90s, how has that affected how you think about real estate here in South Florida now? Um, it opened my eyes to, to be more mindful of the impediments that women and people of color confront when doing business in South Florida. And that, um, you know, how hard it is for um, African-Americans to create wealth within um, South Florida, even though South Florida is an extremely receptive entrepreneurial environment. And so it, it made me aware of that and made me much more of a outspoken critic of that system, which I think has made me less popular with my peers um, in, in South Florida, I think, and also made me less popular with some of the banking institutions uh, because, you know, I felt that the system is unfair and people like to point at me as someone who's an example of the success and opportunity. And I remind them that I came down to Miami, a, a very successful, wealthy developer, and I took everything I had. 
a lot of my financial resources to get through the obstacles that were put in front of us just to build a royal palm because that wasn't easy. I had to come against an established system, um, an established political and economic system um, that didn't want me. And then after that, to overcome other challenges. And so if I didn't have my resources, I would have failed. So, I mean, it opened my eyes to how much work is necessary to change this. You were the outsider in the mid-90s. You were the successful developer coming from Washington, D.C. to Miami Beach, seeing the opportunity, uh, moving into this new market. Does the market here in South Florida, a market that you have continued to operate in since the Royal Palm in the mid-90s, does it need more set-asides similar to that Royal Palm deal from the mid-90s? I mean, well, that's a good question. I consider myself kind of the outside insider. I mean, because while I've been down in South Florida for 20 plus years, I'm never, I'm still not a part of the establishment. I think that I don't represent kind of the status quo and I'm trying to buck the system and I'm you're trying to force, you know, people to be more inclusive. So I'm not the ideal insider. But what I would say is that what we should hope for is businesses doing business with people reflective of the population. So, I mean, every industry in South Florida ought to be reflective of the population demographics of the communities. So just around around the country. And so when banks look at their loans and if they're in an environment where the black population is 30%, but black businesses only account for 3% of their business loans, and they know that they've got a discriminatory lending practice. It's not that there's not enough talent out there. It's that simple, that clear cut for you. Yes, absolutely. Because talent is distributed equally. It's opportunity that's discriminatorily applied. And access to capital is key to that. So my view is that if your product is you're renting out money, then you should find enough diverse people to lend it to. The goal should be that businesses do business with everyone and treat them the same. That has just not been the case. And South Florida is not by itself. So I think that, and I think there needs to be a concerted effort. I think that African-Americans in Miami-Dade have been kind of the forgotten constituency. Most people who are successful in Miami, no one gave them anything. I mean, they worked hard, they busted their butt to get there. And so they figure if they've done that, then everybody else should. But I think that there needs to be a recognition that, you know, systemic oppression and discrimination needs to um, be rectified by affirmative steps in providing opportunity. So making conscious efforts to attract talent in terms of employees, executive leadership and the like, however that's accomplished. And I think if we could count on the destination to just say this is what we're going to do, then I don't think you have to legislate it. But I don't think this is a government responsibility. The government is the one place that everyone should be to go to and get fair treatment. However, we are a capitalistic democracy. The pillars of our democracy rest on capitalism. And so this is a private. So the private sector is looked upon to address some of these structural uh, deficiencies in our country. And so this is a private sector responsibility and how all of us run our businesses determines what kind of impact we our, our society has. And so our company, for example, practices what we call affirmative development. We make a conscientious effort to make sure that the economic opportunities generated by our projects 
are reflective of the population demographics where we do business. What does that mean? That means the selection of contractors and subcontractors, banking institutions, insurance, everybody's involved in a real estate development deal? Exactly. From the lawyers all the way through the contractors and the workers on the project. And so historically, we've done over 25% of our contracts with minority firms and women firms. And now we're going to 35%. Do you further stipulate that minority definition to black contractors, to Hispanic contractors, to other? We, again, based on population demographics. I mean, what we found in Miami is that it's not hard to find talented um, Latino uh, professionals across the board. I mean, there's a depth of talent in that community in Miami. So we're able to do that pretty effectively. I think where we where we have to work to give people first time opportunities and the like, or, you know, or when it comes to African-Americans, say in Miami, um, and when it comes to, um, you know, other locations. I mean, in Charlotte, we're doing a 18 acre project in three phases that will be several billion dollars. And I made a decision that I wanted diversity from day one. And so when we interviewed law firms, we had them fill out a report um, about their workforce the partners in the law firm, the associates and the administrative people, and what that, what the, what the uh, demographics were. And most of them almost all performed poorly in that. So we ended up taking, you know, two firms and making them partner up together, a black owned law firm, a small black owned law firm that had some real estate knowledge and experience and partner them up with a national firm. Together, they work on the, on the work. And we made sure that the split was 65-35 of work and money and that way you help pull the, you know, get the black firm more experience, get them a relationship with this law firm and hopefully send a message. But we can't do it by ourselves. And that's why we need the other real estate developers, say in South Florida, they need to say this is important to them and, uh, and, and set, set that tone. Otherwise, if these protests have shown us anything, is that the younger generation in America is not going to take this. So the business model as it currently exists, long term, is not sustainable. You cannot lock out so many people economically and have a sustainable business model. So for the survival of our industry, we've got to make sure that we are more inclusive. Speaking with real estate developer Don Peebles. Still to come, we talk more about race and the real estate development industry. What needs to happen is the capital needs to be deployed in real estate on a basis of the population demographics of a particular market. Back on the Sunshine Economy on WLRN, I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. Today, a conversation with real estate developer Don Peebles. He first made it big in the early 90s in Washington, D.C. He has projects here and in several cities across the country today. He's been based in South Florida since the mid-90s when he became the first black owner of a Miami Beach luxury resort hotel. That happened because of racial tension almost 30 years ago. Black groups boycotted Miami's tourism industry for almost three years, and one part of the settlement to end it was for a black-owned, convention-style hotel on or near Miami Beach. At the heart of the boycott then was economic inclusion, a theme that has emerged again in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. This is where we pick up our conversation with Peebles. We spoke with him in late September. How do you think, Don, the death of George Floyd and the demonstrations and the protests that we've seen for months across the country and the reckoning that it has led 
uh, to in society? Has that affected the dialogue uh, around real estate and race? There has been no other time in the country in my lifetime that I can think of where the treatment and the discrimination that African-Americans confront uh, since 1960s during the civil rights movement because of the death of George Floyd and the fact that the video cameras, because television was what brought in the civil rights movement to people's living rooms. And that changed the country because Americans who were not in the South were not seeing this said, oh my God, this can't be America. You saw the fire hoses, you saw the German shepherds, right? Yeah. And so they saw what peaceful protesters were getting. Now here, this time they got to see when, you know, while people talk about African-Americans being killed by the police, this one, they got to see a person murdered right in front of their eyes. And so America, all Americans by and large have said that that is, that was un, uh, that unacceptable, that was murder. And, and then many Americans, a majority believe that African-Americans are unfairly exposed to this kind of uh, abuse of with the criminal justice um, structure. I think that what George Floyd's death did is wake the country up and it's gotten the young people, black, white, Latino, and everything in between that they are outraged by this and, and most Americans are. And so they've, they, they're fighting now for a change in the system. And that has um, awakened and concerned the business establishment because they business cannot thrive and prosper in that kind of environment with these protests going on and so forth. In developer lingo, there's the capital stack, right? There's, in other words, the amount of money that it takes to get a building off the ground. What, what is, where are those dollars coming from? How much of it is selling part of the building? How much of it is loans, senior status of a loans, who would get paid first if things go awry, who gets paid first if things go great. Um, would you suggest almost a racial or ethnic stack as developers look at how those opportunities are allocated within a development, within a property? What I would, let's, let's talk about the capital stack. I think that's a very relevant point here. So let's take a $100 million project just for round numbers. 65% of that to 70%. But let's be conservative. 65% will come from a senior lender like a bank, like Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase or the like. And that'll be a very low interest rate. And so that means now out of $100 million, you got 65 million from the bank. So then there's 35 million left and that's equity. Now, most developers don't put $35 million into a $100 million project. So they go to the private equity market. And that's where the Blackstones, the Black Rocks, the Goldman Sachs, the Apollos and so forth, Starwood, that's where they all play. So of that $35 million left, the private equity funds will put up 90%. So that means that the developer now puts in $3.5 million. The developer will pay a higher interest rate for that private equity. And then once they hit that benchmark of 8% or so, then the split will go, there'll be what's called a developer promote of another 20 to 30 points. Um, and that will get the developer, you know, 30 to 40% of the cash flow. And then if it's a home run, they'll end up getting more than 50%. That's how a $100 million project gets funded. But it all is predicated upon how that 35% is allocated by the capital allocators. Now, the biggest investors in private equity 
are public employee pension funds. Those public employee pension funds have significant minority and women representation. But out of the $69 trillion in private equity and venture capital, less than 1.3% goes to firms run by minorities and women. So you have all this capital that a lot of it's minority and women's money, but it doesn't go back to them because it's allocated by the same people and then they allocate it to people they're comfortable with, someone like them. And so what needs to happen is the capital needs to be deployed in real estate on a basis of the population demographics of a particular market, or you're taking money from pension funds who have a 30% minority membership and a 50% female membership, then you need to allocate capital much closer to that. There's been no accountability for how capital is allocated because it's a quiet, hidden industry. And these are the people who are giving themselves multi-million dollar birthday parties each year. These are the people who are buying $100 million condos in Manhattan or $100 million homes in the Hamptons with money that they've earned, but it's a quiet business that no one has focused on. But I think that has to be the change about how the capital is allocated to real estate. Is real estate part of the conversation since the killing of George Floyd, do you think? Yeah, well, I think much more so now. And I think people misunderstand what Black Lives Matter, I mean, means. And Black Lives Matter doesn't just mean don't kill, you know, black people or the police don't kill black people when you stop them for, uh, you know, a a minor incident. Um, It means equal protection under the law, but it means that black, you know, ambition matters, black education matters, black entrepreneurship matters, Um, you know, equal access to opportunity for black lives, that matters. So it's an overall change about how our society treats black Americans. That has percolated into real estate because there's so many, I mean, African-Americans are just like everybody else, entrepreneurial. And so for years, as my public profile had increased, I have been, you know, black, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs have reached out to me. And so real estate is one of the lower barriers educationally to enter. And so anyone can buy a house, renovate it and resell it if they have access to money. And so it's one of the reasons why you have generational real estate wealth. One person could work hard, build a bunch of apartment buildings, hold on to them, leave them to their family and require that they be professionally managed by a professional property manager. As long as the generation, the next generation or two doesn't sell them, those projects will continue to produce income and appreciate. So it's almost idiot proof. But yet when it comes to access to opportunity, it goes to other people and they are not smarter than the other aspirational minorities and women out here who also want to be in this, just that they got a chance and these other people don't. There has been a growing and uncomfortable for some recognition of race within our institutions and elsewhere. Real estate has a racist history, the history of redlining, uh, the history of steering buyers of color by not giving them all the information necessary to make good decisions or not even having brokers call back a black buyer of real estate, for instance. Lending practices have been shown to be racist. You work in a number of locations. How is and how should South Florida address 
race in real estate today in 2020. So what you mentioned about the impediments that African-Americans confronted reminds me of when I bought the Bath Club. The Bath Club built back in the roaring 20s as a private club on Miami Beach. So I bought the Bath Club and once I bought the, I bought the Bath Club, I got all these documents that came with it. And so while I was reading the bylaws and the bylaws back from 1926 said how black colors and Jews could not come to the property, could not come, could not be members and could not dine on the property. And black colored servants could not step foot on the property. They could go to the loading area and hand off members belongings, you know, to, that they members would want to take to, uh, you know, things to their cabanas and they would be handed to a white staff member who would take them uh, to the cabanas. And then there were hotels and other facilities in, in South Florida that said no blacks, no Jews, no dogs. There were hotels in Fort Lauderdale that had those signs out there. And I did not know about these kinds of things before I came down to South Florida, for example. So there is a presumption by our industry that when it comes to African-Americans, that we are somehow less capable, somehow we are less competent and that we didn't get to where we are because of our hard work or that we haven't gotten, people haven't gotten fair opportunities because they've confronted obstacles. And I think the first thing that our industry has to do is ask to, we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to recognize that we provide numerous obstacles to every aspect of real estate from home ownership to, to apartment rentals, to loans to appraisals that discriminate based on geographic location to commercial real estate loans to career opportunities that the fact of the matter that when we walk around and see our industry and we know that we don't see many black people we have to know that we're discriminating so we have to look within our own industry and say we are going to be a part of this change we cannot wait for someone else to come and do it for us. We can't wait for the government. We have to be the people that bring a change to our industry. Real estate developer Don Peebles. Still to come, how he sees commercial real estate now, where he's going shopping for properties, and why he's optimistic in South Florida despite the pandemic. When this is solved, I believe that it will inure to South Florida's benefit. This is the Sunshine Economy. I'm Tom Hudson. There are so many unanswered questions about the long-standing economic impact from the pandemic. Two key questions for the South Florida economy, how will tourism look in the future, and what will be the impact on commercial real estate in the region? These are two very important industries for the area, tourism and real estate, and Don Peebles is interested, even though how these two weather the pandemic is highly uncertain. Peoples has developed over $6 billion worth of properties across the United States, including Miami, since beginning his company in the early 1980s. He's survived a few economic recessions, but no one has experienced anything like this pandemic economy. We spoke with Peoples from his home in Coral Gables in late September. As you look so many months into the pandemic, still waiting for real significant economic sustainable rebound, how do you think COVID has impacted commercial real estate here in South Florida? Well, I think that um, in the short term, it's put commercial real estate a bit on hold in terms of 
uh, office space consumption. If you look at downtown Miami, for example, Brickell especially, as well as downtown Fort Lauderdale and even West Palm, uh, the office markets were becoming very strong and the rental rates were very competitive with some of the other major cities in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. Uh, and so leasing activity was pretty solid. Vacancy rates were coming down significantly. And then with the pandemic, it kind of put things on pause. And so I think that's more of a short-term experience. I think once we get through this pandemic, uh, once there's a vaccine or uh, some form of effective treatment, when this is solved, I believe that it will inure to South Florida's benefit in terms of commercial real estate. I think you'll see things pick back up and consumption of office space increase. What do you think is going to drive that here? If you look at what was happening in the residential market, as well as the commercial market, you were seeing more entrepreneurial firms leave cities like New York, which were high tax cities and high tax states, and a increasing anti-business climate. So you were seeing this kind of shift happening before COVID. One of the things that many of the firms who were contemplating this were hesitant about is how would they communicate and did they have to be in New York? And this pandemic and forcing the entire country uh, to work remotely for nearly six months now has changed people's orientation. And so it's proven to them that they can work pretty effectively and companies can work pretty effectively and not have everyone coming into one, you know, kind of HQ uh, location in New York. And that has pushed people outside of New York City already. And I think you'll see much more of that. And people will now, entrepreneurs who never would have considered moving out of New York and the Northeast will now look at South Florida as attractive business-wise and quality of life. You've got an optimistic outlook when it comes to demand for commercial real estate in South Florida post-pandemic. But what about that supply, right? Restaurants, retail, bars, hotels, all severely impacted by this pandemic with real questions about the wherewithal that any number of them have to be able to survive months upon months with restricted business limitations. Is there going to be a significant supply to the market, which would subsequently depress prices on the commercial real estate side? I think it's going to be more of a reshuffling of the deck. Unfortunately, I think you're going to see, especially in the hospitality industry, nationally and internationally, a big reshuffling of the deck and a significant depression on pricing. And that significant depression on pricing um, will last, I think, three, maybe um, five years before a full recovery in certain markets and certain types of product. I don't think all products are going to recover in the same way. I think that the leisure hotels where they are attracting a demographic that can afford to travel, people are going to travel. I think that those that rely on corporate travel outside of, say, Washington, D.C., I think they're going to have a big challenge. I think group business is going to be um, the real challenge in terms of getting the hospitality industry to recover. And only the deep-pocketed group hotels will recover. Corporate and group business is going to take a long time to recover. And I think that the hotels that are smaller, I mean, 200 rooms or so, that can effectively control cost, 
Um, I think that in, in, a, in markets like Miami Beach and other tourist type markets, I think they're going to they'll rebound quicker. We're looking at buying hotels now. You see this as a buying opportunity then? I do. And I, unfortunately, I don't th- I don't think the worst has come yet. I think that this is going to be a real challenge for um, the hotel industry. And, and many owners are going to abandon or, or lose their hotels. No fault of their own. But you know, this global pandemic. And I think that's the same place where we see retail, uh, brick and mortar retail. And to be clear, Don, you're looking to buy the physical building, the property. Is that right? Yes. And what are the characteristics that are attractive to you, particularly when it comes to geography? Are you looking here in South Florida for opportunity? Uh, Yes, we are looking. And we're looking in, we're looking more in established destination resorts. So, locations that attract tourism and can attract social activities. Those aren't going to change. I mean, techno- you cannot virtually have a vacation and really truly enjoy. You're not going to get a suntan virtually, you know, traveling to Miami Beach. You got to physically go down there. But just like you and I are interacting right now, we can do business this way and we can have conferences this way. You know, I've spoken at conferences now with thousands of people through, um, you know, a Zoom or you know, other type of virtual platform. And I think that's here to stay and it's very efficient. So I think that, but I think that the core business, as long as we're going to have a good economy and one that's productive, I think you'll con- leisure business will continue. And then there'll be some uh, locations um, that are business travel and leisure, like a Washington, D.C. and maybe a Philadelphia. And then you're going to see these other cities that are emerging that have a very small inventory, like Charlotte, North Carolina, or uh, Nashville, Tennessee, um, where businesses are moving. I think you'll see more activity there. And look, on the hospitality side, that we think Miami Beach and Miami are well positioned for the leisure business. And once people can travel again, they're going to come to Miami. There's plenty of liquidity. Interest rates are incredibly low. Credit standards are incredibly high. And when talking to financiers and others involved in the velocity of money and in the transaction, they may be a bit more reluctant to loan money out on the short term, the five-year or, or, or a three-year term that commercial real estate depends upon. Well, I think that, look, I think if you look at hospitality, it's always been a sector in real estate that lenders are afraid of or very caught. They tread very cautiously. And so cost or capital has always been a bit higher in the hospitality space. It is a cyclical business. And there are certain situations like the SNO and banking crises in the early 90s. The savings and loan crisis. Yeah. Yes. And then the um, financial crises in the Great Recession that took place in 08. Those present tremendous buying opportunities. And then there's capital for that. And I think this is going to be a buying opportunity, but not in bulk, not like going through the grocery store and throwing everything in the cart. It's going to be very selective pickings. These bigger group hotels are going to have a lot of trouble. And the older generations of hotels are. But I I mean, capital, there's nowhere with interest rates at zero, essentially. There's so much capital looking for a home. I think they'll have to. And there will be some brave and and. Um, opportunistic um, capital that will go into the hospitality sector. I think the office market sector is an easier pitch. What are the signs you and your investment portfolio committee are looking for to pull some triggers, to make purchases? 
So first, we're really focused on a well-established, you know, upscale luxury destination um, locations for tourism and leisure. We are looking at buying at a significant discount to replacement to cost and looking at where we can control cost. So cheaper to buy than to build. Yes, much cheaper. 50% cheaper? I mean, as best as we can, but the threshold is about 30%. 30% cheaper. Okay. Yeah. And then uh, cost control is important as well. Yes, very much so. Ideally, what we're looking for is opportunities to reposition up. So buying something that's maybe four star, putting some little bit of putting money into FF&E and some services. FF&E, furniture, fixtures and equipment. And getting it to, you know, four and a half to five star. And then also being able to control costs by not having large um, F&B outlets. Food and beverage. Much more cost-effective operations. That's what we're looking at. Miami and Miami Beach is a year-round destination overall. And so I like, so Miami, um, we're looking out on the West Coast as well. Um, we've been looking in, uh, in, in Mexico. Speaking with real estate developer Don Peebles. Still to come, his half-billion-dollar bid to make his business more diverse. It was harder than I thought it would be, and I was becoming less optimistic, sadly, before the death of George Floyd. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. Don Peebles has developed billions of dollars of real estate coast to coast, including some here in South Florida. He launched an effort to raise a half billion dollars from investors to put towards smaller projects led by women and minority developers. He saw it as his answer to the lack of diversity in commercial real estate development. He began the effort before this summer's social justice demonstrations in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, which brought renewed focus on economic inclusion. We spoke with Peebles in late September. We decided to go down this road to build a fund, which will be one of many, that proves that deploying capital fairly to diverse groups of people can produce very strong returns. How far along the half-billion-dollar target are you? Two-thirds of it. Um, so we're, we're getting there. I mean, but it's not easy. I mean, we've gotten you know, questions like, well, are there enough talented minorities out there? Are these deals going to be to produce decent returns? It was harder than I thought it would be. And I was becoming less optimistic, sadly, before the death of George Floyd. And after George Floyd and the protests that we're seeing, then things changed. There shouldn't be this idea that in order to do business with African-Americans, you have to take a less valuable project or a riskier investment or an inferior product. You should be able to do business with them the same way you do with white investors. But look at the deal first. Are you experiencing different types of questions in the part of investors? Yes. In fact, I think that we were doing this fund for our core business. We'd have raised it a couple times over. And would race have played a role in those conversations with investors? Subconsciously, yeah. I think that people look at this and say, how can you find enough talent to deploy the capital, first of all, black talent, for example. 
there's this rush to deal with this issue right away because people are, companies are afraid and they're looking more philanthropically, but some of the more innovative ones are looking from a business perspective. They are tremendous economic opportunities and the social benefits are transformative. Oftentimes you are described in the media not as a real estate developer, but as a black real estate developer. I made it a point early in my career to not let race define me. But what happened is that as my career evolved and with the Royal Palm, that definition kind of changed and, um, and evolved into me being defined as a person who was going to build the Black-owned hotel uh, in Miami Beach. And the Royal Palm kind of changed that. Then I saw kind of what happened afterwards. More and more African-American entrepreneurs reached out to me. More of them were inspired. Once I saw the impact it had to people and in inspiring other people, then it didn't bother me as much. Because there's so few Black developers out there, I find it useful for people to look at my race. South Florida provided me great opportunity. It took me from being a local Washington, D.C. developer to being a national developer, which would not have happened if it wasn't for the Royal Palm, the Bass Club, and what I learned in South Florida. And I believe that as South Florida has evolved over the two plus decades I've been here, I believe that South Florida will evolve and be much more inclusive in the commercial real estate industry over the next five years. And that will provide some significant opportunity. That's real estate developer Don Peebles. Still to come, catching up with a bartender, baker, and banker navigating the pandemic economy. I've gotten a few people that have called and asked for, for interviews. The last few weeks, it's been uh, kind of a process and a nightmare. We are classifying a handful of loans uh, because we do see them becoming you know, problems. We're back on the Sunshine Economy. Thanks again for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. Last week was a tough week at work for Keisha Scott. Oh my gosh, it's still it's still bad. She's a bartender at a restaurant in Boynton Beach and is on the front lines of wearing a mask in public. It's been three weeks since Governor Ron DeSantis announced the state was in phase three of its reopening. Still just very, very much so mixed messaging in there. Scott is the bartender of the bartender, banker, and baker trio of women we've been checking in with each week during this economic recovery. Last week also was tough for Scott because she had a bad personnel experience at work. She still works at the restaurant, but is looking for a new job while stepping up her timetable to switch careers. During the pandemic, she received two certifications, one for personal training, another for nutrition. I never took my resume off of Indeed or off ZipRecruiter, so I've had people reach out. I've gotten a few people that have called and asked for for interviews. Um, I've been in the restaurant business for 20 years, and I, I one thing I've learned is the best way to keep you know, not only keep your business progressive and successful, but also keeping your keeping employees loyal and ha having less turnover. Um, and the reason why people don't stick around in certain situations, I mean, this can be with any job, but especially in the service industry, is you have to be able to be respectful and, and talk to people like people, <laughs> like adults. 
I'm lucky enough to have enough experience and with things opening back up, there's a lot more opportunity out there. So I just keep my fingers crossed and hope I can find something with a little more structure. I actually just received my hard copy of my certification, my uh, personal trainer certification. So like you can print a copy of it, but they also send you like the official like hard copy that you can put in the in the frame and all that. So I just actually got mine in the mail. I'm going to go right next to my nutrition certification and I'm going to start creating my my little business wall, my vision board that I call it, but it's really the whole wall of my dining room <laughs> that I've also turned into an office. So <laughs> I just started a brand new resume and I'll be working on that with my mom um, and just looking into some local wellness centers and gyms that could be interested in bringing on a novice trainer, you know, even if it's on an internship part-time just to get my foot in the door. So definitely moving a little faster than anticipated. <laughs> Bartender Keisha Scott. On the calendar this week for American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin in Fort Lauderdale is a monthly loan committee meeting. We've got a steady pipeline of new loans. Uh, we've got loan committee Thursdays. We'll have about four or five new money and then some renewals and some modifications. And, and then, you know, we are classifying a handful of loans uh, because we do see them uh, becoming, you know, problems. What that means to us as a bank is we need to classify them as a problem, you know, loan. And, uh, and that requires us to increase our reserves for loan loss, you know, on those. So we do have a, a handful that, that are really, um, you know, having some tough times. And a couple of these loans are uh, related to the hospitality, and it's, it's, it's COVID. I mean, that's, that's what it is. Now, we go back to 2008, right, the Great Recession. It's it, nothing. I'm not seeing anything <laughs> in that magnitude. So that's positive. That's American National Bank CEO Ginger Martin in Fort Lauderdale. Half Moon Empanada's boss, Pilar Guzman Zavala, had to make a tough decision last week. Her company just launched a rebranding effort, but she wasn't happy with the new website. This week, she has the opportunity for the company to take another step toward growing. The last few weeks, it's been uh, kind of a, a process and a nightmare. And so half of the week was dedicated to, you know, fixing, trying to fix and get the website going to the point where uh, we made the decision that we were terminating the vendor in the middle of building the website because it's just not there. It's not going forward. It's not moving anywhere. And it just has taken so much energy from me and my team. Um, so you sometimes you got to cut the losses, you know, because it was so stressful uh, the last couple of days. Uh, I said to me today, I am, I am doing something fun for myself. Um, it wasn't it wasn't taking a break in in the sense of work because I enjoy working, but I said um, I'm gonna do something that is fun. And so I had a brainstorming session with my husband, who's the creator and the visionary of things, about um, a project that I've been wanting to do, which is working on inspiring more women entrepreneurs and Hispanics and working uh, moms. So some of the ideas is maybe you know, having conversations with like women leaders or entrepreneurs in Miami, uh, like empanadas with Pilar kind of thing. It could be a podcast. It could be a YouTube program. I don't know. Those are the things I'm defining now. So the next week I have to focus on um, one specific project, which is uh, we have a bid, an RFP that we put in in the Denver airport 
you know, like one of the, the strategies that we're trying to do is to grow the business in airports uh, licenses. So we have a partnership with a couple companies that are also minority that we bid it on a space in the Denver airport and we're presenting. So we were kind of called the finalists among the finalists. And so we're making a presentation to the airport virtually Friday. I think we have a huge potential for winning it. That's, that's what my energy says to me. <laughs> to see the light of like, okay, there is that. So it means, it means something. It gives you energy. And, and so I'm very excited about that. You know, airports can take, it could be something that in a month they give you their response. It could take six months. My store in the airport took three years to, from the moment I bid it to the moment I actually opened the door. So that's why it's so tough, you know, because it's like a lot of barriers to entry. Pilar Guzman Zavala with Half Moon Empanadas, the baker of our baker, banker, bartender trio we're following week to week through the pandemic economy. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening.